welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 240. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, trifecta special this week, we bring you three, count them three, different short stories, all revolving around some theme. The theme of Trifecta 21, family unties, non-traditional homes, and family situations. First, though, a drabble. Drabble! Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, a wonderful exercise in sharp, streamlined fiction. Try writing one yourself. They're short, but not always easy. Send it in to submissions at drabblecast.org. You might even end up hearing it on the show. This week's Drabble comes from Chris Schreier, and it's called How to Deal. Chris is a stay-at-home dad and student who spends his time applying for jobs and wondering why grown-ups are so weird. And girls. Them too. I always scream upon opening my underwear drawer. I feign terror when I come home to a tidy house, and if there's a hot dinner on the table, I hide in my bed, at least until the food cools a bit. A clean car gets a fainting spell, while a trimmed lawn merits a fake heart attack. Anything can be addressed with proper planning, and a haunted house is no exception, especially when the ghosts in question are as thick as this lot. Oh, I'd be truly petrified if these dishes were cleaned and put away in the morning. And so it goes. Our first story this week, Divorce in the House of Flies by Dustin Reed. Dustin's been published in over 60 anthologies, magazines, and weblogs, including Static Movement, Nerve Cowboy, Golden Visions, and Living Dead Press. He's also the editor of the bizarro surrealist e-zine The Mustache Factor. His short fiction can be read online at The New Flesh, Bizarro Central, and Three Minute Plastic. The story is read to you by Josh Roseman. Josh is a fiction writer and voice artist whose writings appeared in Asimov's April 2012 and whose voice has appeared on Escape Pod and Starship Sofa. He's also a web developer, a father, and a human being. So without further ado, we bring you Divorce in the House of Flies by Dustin Reed. I wake up to find my parents have been transformed into insects. Not just one insect. No, hundreds of them. Thousands. They fly around, bumping into one another, somehow maintaining a vague outline of my parents. What I mean is, the bugs still kind of look like my parents. Mom, I ask, standing in the doorway in my footed pajamas, what happened to you guys? I do not address my father. We do not talk. He does not understand me. That's fine. Young men often have problems communicating with their fathers. Motherbug runs a hand through its hair, and I see hundreds of the head bugs fall to the carpet, dead. Mother is always running her hands through her hair like that. It is a nervous tick. I guess she will have to stop now that she is bugs. Come here, honey, she says, sitting down on the bed and patting the mattress. I walk over and sit down beside her on the bed. I do not like having to be this close to all those bugs, but it is my mother, I guess. Even so, 
I feel like they are on me. My mother puts her bug hand on my shoulders and says, Honey, your father and I have been doing some thinking, and, well, we have decided it would make more sense if your father didn't live here for a little while. I jump up angrily and point at her. I try to sound as menacing as possible when I say, Divorce? But she just sighs and says, Please, try to take this seriously, honey. This is not a joke. Fine, fine, I say. My father is already packing his things. I half wonder if he will pack me up and take me, too. I could live in his suitcase and use his shaving kit as my bed things. Will I miss him? No, probably not. I think the fantasy about living in his suitcase was brought on simply by the fact that my current situation is changing, and I don't quite know how to deal with it at the moment. Or whatever. My mother starts crying. It sounds like thousands of mosquitoes having a really hard time. My father clears his throats, and several bugs fall when he wipes his eyes. I wonder why I am not crying. I wonder what is wrong with me. Like, maybe I have some kind of emotional problem that makes it so I am like a robot or something. My father slams a drawer closed suddenly and storms out of the bedroom. I feel his absence like a cancer. My mother goes to pieces. Bugs fly all over the place, forming a sad outline on my father's side of the bed. It is getting too awkward for me to stay, so I kind of skip out of the room and go down the hall to use the toilet, even though I don't really have to go. I just want to be away from the bugs. I get into the bathroom and sit down on the toilet and just sort of hum. Nothing happens. And I wonder if maybe this is one of those weird times where I can't go unless I take all my clothes off. So I take all my clothes off. And that's when I notice my legs. I notice I have too many of them. Six of them, actually. They stick out of my sides like broken ribs with bendy joints. They kind of make me sick. Like, I don't feel good when I look at them, because I feel like they shouldn't be there. So, seeing them there makes me want to throw up a little. That's when my mother starts flying under the door. She does it slowly, one insect at a time, and it takes forever. Soon, she is in there with me, staring at me. You're naked, she says. Yeah, I say. Sometimes it is easier to go when I'm like this. I see, she says. Then she walks over and inspects her body in the mirror, pinching a roll of fat bugs around her midsection and sighing loudly. I wonder if I made a mistake, she says, letting your father go. She says, I'm an old woman now. Who is going to love an old woman? I wipe, stand up, take her by the shoulders, and give her a little kiss on her forehead. Don't worry, Mama, I say. Someone will. Someone will. Our next story is Wendigo Bake Sale by Leslie Ann Wilder. 
Leslie Ann's a writer and blogger whose work has appeared in places like Shock Totem, the magazine of Bizarro Fiction, Static Fiction, and others. Find her at lesliannwilder.blogspot.com. So get those brownies out of the oven. We bring you Wendigo Bake Sale by Leslie Ann Wilder. It is a bleak, white, bake sale Saturday in Otterdale, Saskatchewan, when the Wendigo come to town. The pair of them stoop and drag their knuckles along the one-lane road by the old gas station whose sign has never been fixed since Paul DeSimone broke his leg three years ago. They are the color of refrozen roadside slush. Their black eyes never blink. Their mouths have too many teeth and cannot close, and the long needles of their fangs stick out in inconsistent rotations, like too many knives shoved into a too small drawer. Behind their teeth are yawning voids that hold the killing wind. They shamble to the closed lumber yard by the highway, where the town's residents have slung colored streamers and hand-painted signs over folding tables full of walnut clusters, cheap leatherwork, and pipe cleaner handicrafts. Mrs. Mary Beth Elkhouse, who teaches math, science, and choir, sees them first. She screams, and the Emerald brothers run to their trucks for shotguns and skinning knives. The children cry. The men wave their shotguns like warding totems. One careless, jittery shot tears through the wendigo. But there is no blood, no acknowledgement in the black eyes that bulge from the side of their head like the eyes of a caribou. Mrs. Mary Beth Elkhouse screeches at them through the light snowfall. What do you want? When the Wendigo speak as one, the cold in their voices makes the people forget, for a moment, the names and faces of their loved ones. We want to support the school. The Wendigo have dragged the top of a camper trailer covered in dried blood with them, the sides ripped to jagged pillar legs. It is clear they have seen tables from a distance, but their effort is all the more horrifying for its recognizable intention. The people of Otterdale creep back in uncertain terror. One Wendigo hauls the camper lid out in front of the other, who has two broken and uprooted pine stumps and a bag made of the whole skin of an elk. The stumps are made into something like chairs, and the Wendigo draw from the bag sumptuous maple blondies the size of frisbees, dark chocolate German cakes, sugar cookies the anemic color of frost rot that nonetheless smell richly of butter and vanilla, and pans of a thick, rich cake bread they only call their secret recipe. Eileen Running, whose cakes are much smaller, tugs at her husband's arm as he watches the Wendigo. Please... She says, I don't want to stay. But he shakes his head, his eyes never leaving the Wendigo. If we let them out of our sight, how do we know where they are? The shadows under the pine trees, the crushed patches of snow piled against the chain-link fence, even the empty winter backyards seem full of living menace. <clears throat> we should try to go on says Preacher Johnson as he huddles into his mittens. Make the best of it. The people begin to mill. 
They miss ring tosses and look over their shoulders. They make jokes and force high, nervous laughs. They buy beaded purses and leather moccasins, and the children in small, faraway groups begin to fight and play. The children have developed a game called Caterpillar, in which they inch along on the cold ground, worm-like in their thick, segmented coats, until one jumps up and proclaims he or she is something altogether different. A butterfly. A moth. One by one, the people begin to thaw. They smile genuinely. Joe Emerald wins three stuffed second-hand prize dolls. Mrs. Gunderson and Mrs. Mann even buy from the Wendigo and eat at first in fear, and then with manic enthusiasm once they taste the sweets. People evangelize with scraps of pecan brittle and cinnamon muffin. Paul DeSimone limps away with a cardboard box full of food to resell at his rusting gas station. When the Wendigo thank a customer for a sale, everyone in the lot can hear it. And before too long, people are giving them shy smiles or stopping to say a shaking hello. Everyone agrees this is the best bake sale the town has ever had. Mrs. Elkhouse drinks to calm her nerves. When she's invited her measure of courage, she goes to talk to the Wendigo, who are all too happy to share their blondie recipe. But why on earth did you come to a school bake sale? She asks. Her persistence is shrill, uncomfortable. We wish to support the school, said the Wendigo, and everyone heard him. Because our child grows here. At this, all the talk dies. It is brutal cold again. <clears throat> we have only human children, says Mrs. Elkhouse, but her voice is small and frightened. The Wendigo do not argue. Slowly, all the warmth drains out of the people's hearts, and when the children cry out, it sounds like the killing wind. The Amaralt boys grip their icing shotguns as they rotate slowly inward. One girl in a pink coat jumps up from her fellows on the ground, her cheeks red, her laughter audible. I'm a butterfly, she says. And all the children chitter. And lastly, we bring you Knit by Brenda Stokes Barron. Brenda's a freelance writer, editor, and researcher, just trying to make her way in this topsy-turvy world. Her fictions appeared in Apex Magazine and Fantastique Unfettered. When Brenda's not writing articles or driving herself crazy with some short story idea, she's reading, playing World of Warcraft, or playing with her pet rats. The story's read to you by Ray Sizemore. Ray's a versatile voice actor that you've heard here on the Drabblecast several times. His other professional credits include audiobooks, documentaries, radio and TV ads, e-learning, promotional videos, and web animation. Check him out at raysizemore.com. So get that sewing needle ready. We bring you Knit by Brenda Stokes Barron. We bought our first yarn baby at a garage sale. The ends of its arms were frayed, and its eye buttons dangled loose on bare threads. We named her Madeline, and sewed the loose edges, replaced the buttons with shiny brass ones, and even sewed on a pocket heart so she could know we loved her, and she could love us back.
She was a special yarn baby, and we were parents, just as we were supposed to be. Madeline enjoyed sitting on the couch between us, watching reruns and listening to us tell the same jokes over and over. I've got your nose, I'd say, poking my thumb between my middle and forefingers. Her mother would laugh and say, Oh, but she doesn't have a nose, silly. And she'd sit on the couch smiling, understanding how funny it was because she, in fact, didn't have a nose. She loved it every time as though it were new. But as soon as she turned 14, she wouldn't sit still. She hated my jokes. She might not have said anything, but she wore a look of disapproval on her face that said, Oh, how pedestrian of you, father. How immature. We found her once on the lawn, beneath the drainpipe, passed out with a cigarette burn on her left arm. Her pocket heart was gone. We'd had enough. Her mother sewed up her arm with mismatched spare yarn, adding a bright yellow splotch to her beige. I marched upstairs to give Madeline a talking to, and I found her perched on top of her pillow sham, taking its ruffles in her mouth and snaking her loose yarn strands over its pleated seams. I turned away as fast as I could, but I'd already seen too much. We couldn't stand for this sort of behavior in our house. Madeline told us we were out of date and old-fashioned. She was going to run away and see the world. As she bolted for the door, I did the only thing I could think of. I grabbed her. I'd only meant to send her back to her room, once the pillow sham had been discarded, of course. Instead, I grabbed a single thread and ripped it free from one of my wife's careful stitches. Madeline looked over her shoulder at me in disgust, but I kept pulling on the loose end. She grunted and marched forward, undeterred. After a minute, I could see the stuffing inside of her. After two, her left arm fell off. Then the rest fell to the front porch, the last bit of her head unraveling. I'm sorry, I tried to say, but her eyes had already come undone and lay on top of the pile of yarn like two unlucky tokens. I placed them in my palm and spoke to them as though they were real eyes. I'm sorry for unraveling you, I said. I'm sorry. I realized that wasn't much of an apology, but it would have to do. My wife was already in tears, sobbing over the loss of her Madeline. What have you done, she said, shouting from the bedroom. I followed the tear droplets to our bedroom and promised I would make it right. She wailed and begged for me to bring what remained of our Madeline to her. I scooped up all of the yarn, even the tiny patch she'd just sewn, and brought them to my wife. Leave me, she said, as soon as all the pieces touched the duvet. What are you going to do? I'll fix her. She pointed to the door and I left, head hanging. I sat outside the bedroom door for two days, listening to my wife sob and curse as she stabbed her thumb with needles. In the middle of the second night, the door opened a crack. I nudged it open the rest of the way. She was sitting on the bed in the same position as before, only this time a freshly stitched yarn baby sat in her lap. Purple-black dugouts hung beneath my wife's eyes. She smiled. I couldn't speak. Aren't you going to say hello to your daughter? She asked, never taking her eyes off the baby. Who is she? This is Dolores, she said, finally meeting my gaze. Here, hug your daughter. She tossed the yarn baby to me and ran to the bathroom. 
The shower ran long and hard. I held Dolores in my arms, gazing into her neatly stitched-on black button eyes and ruby-red curve of a mouth. The yellow patch pieces were sprinkled about her body, adding splashes of sunny warmth to her beige frame. Now we could start again. I hugged her small frame close to me, and a sewing needle stuck my chest. Blood blossomed on my blue shirt. After a year, Dolores uttered a low growl and howled like a gutter dog. I looked at my wife, and she shook her head. I must have missed a stitch, she said. I'll have to redo her. I wanted to protest, but I couldn't. I knew she was right. Dolores had been made to howl, and that wasn't fit for a yarn baby. My wife undid her and redid her. It only took her a day this time. I asked her if she'd been sure to catch every stitch. She huffed at me and said she had. I believed her, even though sewing needles protruded from the baby's hands and feet. Joan burped up a button after a month, and her mother said that wouldn't do. So she redid her. Nancy cried in the middle of the night after a week, and her mother redid her in just three hours. I didn't protest. More sewing needles lay buried in her belly. When I squeezed her, I could feel their rigidity where only softness should have been. Judy turned her newborn head to her mother. Oh no, this won't do, her mother said, and pulled at the back of her body until she lay in a heap of unused yarn. My wife's fingers bent with arthritis with great knobs of bone jutting out from her knuckles. She tried to make the first stitch, just as she did so many years before, and the loop fell off the needle. I grabbed her hands and led her to the bedroom. I stroked her gray hair and clutched the mess of yarn that was Judy, and Nancy and Dolores and Madeline, between us, as her sleepy breaths turned shallow, then stopped. I knew what I must do. I knitted and sewed for hours. So much yarn and stuffing. I tucked the yarn baby's mother's ashes inside. Done. She blinked her button eyes and looked at me, offering a smile. I sunk against her warm shoulder in what used to be our bed. Sewing needles stuck out from her armpits and breasts, puncturing my chest and stomach. She wriggled closer and pressed her legs against mine, my blood bloomed in wild patches on her coarse stitches. I murmured to her about a life where we never had yarn babies, and we never got old trying to fix them. Yarn mother listened and smiled. Blood pooled beneath me in the bed. She only nodded. And she waited until she thought I was asleep to stitch my eyes shut. The sounds of the world grew distant. And still I had to wonder... What yarn would she use for the curve of my mouth? What would I look like redone? And that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed. 
If you did, you can take a unique place in our weird Drabblecast family as Sugar Daddy. Drop some money in the Drabblecast cup on your way out. You'll find support options glaring you in the face off our webpage, Drabblecast.org, a one-time option with PayPal or credit card, or if you'd like to help us out long-term and don't want to be bothered remembering to donate, there are automatic $5 or $10 a month subscriptions. 5 or 10 bucks a month for all this kick-ass fiction? Man, that's a deal. And we really appreciate it, because this show is free for you, but not for us. Lots of costs go into this show behind the scenes, and we really rely on your support. Many thanks. Also, if you're looking for even more awesome content from the makers of the Drabblecast, you'll be happy to hear it's time for the fifth annual Super Animal Mega Beast Deathmatch Competition. Some are born, even bred, for the battlefield. Their whole lives dedicated to one unholy purpose. Bloody, gruesome combat. Though many compete, in the end, only one is left standing. Or flying. Or swimming. Or teleporting. Who would win in a hypothetical fight to the death? A giraffe that breathes fire? Or a flying grizzly bear with giant bat wings? A solar-powered polar bear? Or a panther that spits acid? We argue, you decide. The Super Animal Deathmatch Competition 2012. The most pointless, awesome contest ever. For real. Brought to you by the weirdos at the Drabblecast. Go to www.drabblecast.org and click on Mega Beasts. So, this won't interest all of you, but for those listeners out there with a pretty crass sense of humor and a proud streak of immaturity, you're in for a treat. The Mega Beast Deathmatch podcast is one we've been doing for years, pulling in original Drabblecast editors Kendall and Luke, as well as pallid, iron-deficient stalwart Adam and Drabblecast art director Bo Kyer. Essentially, what we do is make up imaginary animals with badass superpowers, get really drunk, and heatedly debate which one would win in a massive cage fight. It's an absolute, total waste of time. Yet, it's as bizarrely fun and engaging as it is utterly, utterly pointless. It's also a completely community-driven event, top to bottom. For the past several months already, Drabblecast fans and our discussion forums have been bouncing around ideas for ridiculously super-enhanced imaginary critters and immersing themselves in impassioned, superfluous debate, whittling down in a series of preliminaries the contestants we've arrived at here for the rounds proper. In the round one podcast this week, the death panel debates who would win in a fight. A rabid, three-ton flying squirrel the size of a moose, a stealthy, air-breathing, flight-enabled manta ray that drops concussive missiles, or a eugenically forged, six-foot-tall communist red panda with metal-capped claws and back-mounted retractable gun turrets. We also get drunk on bourbon, compare and contrast Carl Weathers with African warlord Joseph Coney, and make fun of Luke's puppy dying of parvo. Absolutely, it's the worst podcast ever, and proudly so. We take this mess very seriously, folks, and for some reason, against all rational explanation, you will too once you start getting involved. Check it out and start voting. Megabeasts.com. Subscribe to the podcast there, or just do a search for Megabeasts on iTunes. Word of warning, though, the podcast isn't at all for those easily offended. I don't know, there's just something about combining whiskey with pointless deliberation over imaginary animals with superpowers that tends to draw out the outrageously asinine in a person. Go figure. But listen at your own risk, for sure.
All right, folks, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, Traveling Corpse Feats, with this one here. The crowd at the gallows looked up, then down, up, down. That bungee noose is making my neck sore, one man finally said. There you go. A story in only 100 characters, not counting spaces. We call them twabbles, and we have an ongoing weekly contest to see who can write the best. Try your hand at it and post it in our discussion forums, linkedoffdrabblecast.org. Or just enjoy reading the winners early week to week by following us on Twitter, at the Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it. But feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Gino Moretto. Gino's a husband and father-slash-teacher-slash-artist living in Wellington, New Zealand. When he's not teaching drama or wrangling his two sons, Angelo and Lorenzo, he enjoys gaming, listening to podcasts, and exploring the arcane secrets of Photoshop. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, Managing Editor, our Submissions Editor, Nathan Lee, Editor-at-Large, Matthew Bay, our Art Director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you to support the school. 